Listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. This is Bill, and here's Nancy. Hello, Burns, and we're your co-hosts on Future mm-hmm. Theater Live Broadcasting. From the banks of the beautiful Primrose Creek on beautiful in beautiful downtown village, uh, Solbury Village, Pennsylvania. See, you try to confuse me, and you got yourself all confused. Well, he was confused because you didn't butt in at first and stop him midway. No, he was just trying to shake my whole system (laughs) on the dark on the dark matter digital network and PSN radio. Our host is the fabulous Jackal Angel Espino, and our guest, say hello, Angel. I forgot that. Hey, hello, Angel. Yeah, but you always forget <laughs> Keith. And without Keith, we have no show. We have no network. Yes, I may be a producer, but he is the Darth Overlord of everything. Yes, he is. And the, head of, and the head of our network is the wonderful Keith Rowland. Thank you, Keith. I'm enjoying Starbucks. And our guests tonight. First is Zoltan Istvan, who um, is a candidate for president of these United States of America on the Transhumanist Party. He's a presidential candidate. He's got a lot to say. And you found and him for us tonight. I'm very happy. With your I very did. own little self. And I you, looking yes, for, you I was looking. For, I was. I. I saw his name pop up on a Huffington Post or a New York. It was probably a New Yorker article about. No, it was Vice. Well, no, which led me to the Vice site where he was writing this article on transhumanism, and that really um, excited me because I. I was working on with um, my partner, John Liebert, on a story of artificial intelligence and found him. And then as a counterweight, uh, our next guest coming on after Zoltan is the fabulous Charles Osman. And he and I were on the phone for most of the day, uh, battering back and forth about a bunch of ideas. We'll talk about them tonight. Well, so these Zoltan- guests. It, Zoltan is only able to be on for 30 minutes. Well, he's running for president, so I mean... Yeah, he's a bit exactly. busy, Nancy. Exactly. So I'm, I'm letting folks know. Um, I suggest for this show, for your edification and for your fun, go to futuretheater.com and click on the link where it says Zoltan Istvan, okay? And you will come to his site. And from there, there's also a... Um, a very nice online magazine called Medium. Uh, and they have a really none. I've linked to that. And you can read an article about Zoltan. And you could sort of see, I only did my prep work for the show today. All for the, for a little longer than two weeks. Bill's been raging about the house saying to me, I've got this guy Zoltan. You really, and every time I hear the name Zoltan, I just zone out. I don't want to research a guy named Zoltan. It's going to be hmm. either a 90-year-old physics professor who has mothballs, you know, moths around his head and talking only about numbers, uh. Zoltan, or it's a guy in a silver jumpsuit, you know, who's got a Actually, lot of medals. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. Zoltan. Sounds and about you, right. <laughs> well, that's why I put his photo on the website, because you see um, 
there's no mistaking that there's this whole kind of Hitler youth thing going on, and I think it's a joke the way he's got. He he's an he's a, a Hungarian person, but he's an American. You know, he's he's us. He's one of us. He's, you know, every time I hear the name Zoltan, though, it reminds me of the movie Dude, Where's My Car? Oh yeah. Oh right, of course. Where? Where? There's a there's a character named Zoltan. Zoltan. Oh, movie. was he like he was toward toward the middle end? He was actually one of the aliens or something. Correct. Wow. Yes. Yeah. They all hailed Zoltan. Well, I noticed that. And now we have Zoltan running for president. Exactly. Scary. And, and so Zoltan is fun. But here's the thing: if you you want to get scared, um, Charles at the end of our show for the Charles Osman's coming on after Zoltan leaves. Uh, Charles is coming on. He is also a futurist. Both these guys are futurists. Zoltan is also a journalist. He's also a volcano, a volcano boarding guy. He right. he. He There's, actually there, boards down the sides of volcanoes. <laughs> Do you understand when, on what on a boogie board? On a board. Yeah, he's you know he's a serious body hacker probably already. And Bill didn't really tell you exactly how he found him, but the article he sent to me was the that Zoltan wrote was for a thing called Motherboard, which is part of Vice Channel. Very cool. And Zoltan is a, as I was telling um, Angel before the show, Zoltan, Zoltan is a top tier one mainstream media person. Okay, so everywhere he writes, it's mainstream. Okay, so uh, he's kind of sinking down with us into the weird world of our world here on Dark Matter Radio Network. Well, the, but, uh, because the he's fact- been on John Stossel, he's been oh, yeah. on National Geographic. He he will he will be shocked at. How wonderful our show is, probably. But well, and he has a great name like Zoltan. Zoltan. No, but but go ahead. Hold on. Go ahead. One at a time. One at a time. Nancy. Yeah. Um, the article that Bill was re- re- referencing in Vice is uh, the t- title is "Legalization of Drugs Should Be Part of a Transhumanist Agenda," and so we probably won't talk about that. But I believe that should be brought out that that's how Bill found him. Number one. And how his very first paragraph is mind-blowing. I'm, here's what he says. I'm from San Francisco. Doing drugs, especially smoking pot, seems second nature to me. I've whoa, made whoa, a point. whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Pot is not a drug. Okay, but let me go on. I've made a okay, point of, tr- of trying nearly all drugs, and I'm unabashedly proud of that fact. Okay, so smoking, he's going to call pot a drug. Most people will call it a drug yeah. nowadays it's a medicine more it's an herb it's illegal it's it's an so herb illegal. yes yes it's yes. so illegal so anyway so that's the article that caught bill's eye and he's all ai and nuclear we're going to get into the nuclear problem with ai with 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 uh, zoltan um and um right 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 okay so we have a, a very interesting guy who believes that we could have a different system in our country and that's why you should go to the website sign up for the party it can't hurt anything there's you At can't all. donate yeah yeah you can't they won't take donations so they're not it's not that kind of thing it's just it's an eye-opening experience for people well okay. his major policy his major policy is that and this makes sense that his party is about allowing uh, the technology to flourish that would guarantee human beings 
an eternal, if not a mostly eternal life. And he said, that's an incredible, that's, uh, that's an incredible goal that we can achieve in this century. In fact, in this century, we can probably, if the government Weird. allocates the funds that are necessary to do that research. So his premise is, if we spent half the money we're spending on wars in Syria and Iraq right now on this research, instead of killing all these people, we'd be empowering human beings to live. And we lost Bill. Okay, yeah, we did. Well, that's we'll earlier than it. normal. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, we can ask him during the very first break uh, to turn off anything that's not critical and yell at uh, him and things. That's always fun. Yeah. Well, you do the yelling. I don't like yelling at Bill. That's just that's. Oh uh, yeah, bad. you just like yelling at me. No, I don't like yelling at all. Well, uh, you're, it's kind of fun yelling at you sometimes. Okay, it must be because you do it so <laughs> naturally. You didn't. Sound I never right. yell at you. I've been trying to get a hold of you in gentle ways all weekend, and then the first thing you say is, "What? No sound check." Because <laughs> I'm a professional, Hello. Nancy. Yes, you are. But it is a pleasure doing radio shows with you, I might add, uh, while we're waiting for Bill to come back. Um, you're still screen sharing with me. Maybe that's a problem. No? No, no. no it shouldn't be a problem. My end is all clear. It's uh, it's on Bill's. Okay. And do we have Danny on the line? Danny is observing uh, the line here. Hey, Danny. Okay. Because yeah, Danny I... is finished. Hi, Danny. Congratulations. Was tonight your first live show? No, it was not. Um, the live shows won't start um, for a little while yet. But oh, uh, okay. Yeah. These, but, because um, the, the show that just aired was pretty darn scary, and so people might want to catch <laughs> it and know that the world has not yet come to an end. No, no, no. And that's, yeah. of course, the show that comes before this show, which is mm-hmm. the Mac Maloney, uh, what is it, UFO X-Files, right, it's Danny? Mil- Military X-Files. Military X-Files, there you go. Military X-Files. Um Mac Maloney is a, is a really good host. I, I hope everybody's taking a, a good listen to his show. Mm-hmm. Isn't he also a singer, and don't you have some of his songs in our bumpers? Well, he's not a singer, but he's he's in a band that's called the Mac Maloney Band, and uh, ah. they do rock. Oh, we, yes. and, 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 you know, and a, and a shout-out to my friend, Dinah X, who I think I might have already said, but she found the music and sent me the full songs so I could play them in my leisure Oh, nice. The bumpers, by the, yeah. By the way, we, we got Mr. Burns back on the line. Mr. Burns, you were saying? Yay. Okay, yeah, start over again, where you were talking about the policies, if you will, of the transhumanist Somebody's parties. typing away. Yeah. Oh, there we go. That's Bill. He thinks he's offline, but he doesn't understand that we can hear. <laughs> he's probably got the mute on. Probably. Check, mute. Check your mute. Ch- check your mute, Bill. This see, I'm going to type here, see. Amazing live radio, isn't it, Danny? Yeah, well, you know what? This is the best radio. See, he says right. he thinks he's offline. I said, check your mute. You're online. Or or Angel will oh, simply call you back. He, he's definitely breathing. Is he? And typing like Yeah, that? but even if I call him back, if he doesn't unmute himself. Oh. And he's not unmuted because he's making noise. True. So there's something else going on with, with him right now. I don't know what it is. Not too maybe sure. A system, maybe a system check of his system sound. I don't know. You, yeah. you really uh, should have him check his system. Okay, well, now let me bring this. Let me not bring to me to yell or nothing, but I'm just saying. Yeah, well, you know what? The thing is, <laughs> what Zoltan is talking about is kind of what we're looking at right now. We are so interfaced with our machines, okay, that uh, I know he's back because I can see him. Bill, are you there? Earth to Bill. I can see his pretty picture. 
Yeah, he's he's there, but he's uh, not answering. Yeah. Earth to Bill. Bill, are you there? We'll get him back. Roger that. We don't have Bill Burns on the line. He seems to be missing. Uh, He's MIA at the moment. Roger that. (laughs) Okay. Danny, you saw what I just did there, Danny? That's uh, that's called filling in some data. Yeah, yeah. and Bill says he can't hear either. Um, Well, the typing is amazing on radio. It really is. Well, I don't. That's not me typing. (laughs) No, that's him typing. Yeah. So if we he's, can this is the amazing it. thing after two years. He's going to quit Skype and restart. Okay. Thank you. That's Bill. a good idea. That might be after a good idea. after after two years, he's he's learned how to type on Skype finally. I know, and he's going to quit Skype <laughs> during the show, not before the show. That's part of the whole professionalism. Keith, I'm sure, is at this point. You know. Well, look, we're we're working our troubles out before Zoltan comes on. By the time Zoltan. Hey, Bill, comes are you there? No, no, he's going to restart. Trust me, it's going to be a good five minutes. And I can fill the five minutes because um, Pony Boy Sunset, a friend of mine, uh, Soroya, she has a little podcast uh, that's connected with the Gabcast and all that. And everybody who listens to Gabcast knows all that. And she was saying, because she's also on a show with this great woman named Rolly. Okay. yeah? Yeah, Rolly. What's her last name? I should know it off the top of my head. Um, That's how bad I am. We always call her Rolly. Anyway, Soroya is on her show every week, and I would love to someday get Rolly on our show because at one point she filled in for Art. So she's Ooh. of that era, and she's an old-timey radio lady just like Hold on. Art. Bill Burns, are you there? Nope. Ah, yes. Bill Burns, are you there? Um, oh, he's breathing. I hear, he's I a hear, breathing. I hear ringing. He's a breathing. Isn't that weird? I see. You, got, you, you guys can blame this on Danny. Um, as soon as I came on, the problem started. So. You know what I'm saying, Danny? I think it is all your fault, my friend. I think you cursed yeah. this show. You did. Yeah. I, it's all your fault. That, I figured that would be how, how it would go. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame you on this one because I can't blame myself. It's not my fault. So no. got to find somebody. Can't blame Bill. He's like an icon. No. You can can't never blame. blame the legend. No, you can't do that. You know, as as we wait for Bill, I went ahead. It and might be a long him. wait, Nancy. Unless yeah. you go, so or, me, why don't you go up there and go help him? Me and Daniel will keep the uh, folks entertained. How's that? No, let me just say say this about the transhumanist party because we won't get be able to get into all this with um, Zoltan. But it says, remember, I said a few minutes ago you cannot donate. That's the whole point. Well, now it seems like you can donate. So scratch that. And you know, I'd love to ask. About, <laughs> I'd love to ask about what what caused the change. Um, and that, I'm finding the platform page, but this is like, this is like a dream platform. Like we will care about the environment and we'll do good things. Okay, every single okay. There's 15. There's 18 points on this platform. Every one I read, everybody would laugh. Like number five, create a flat flat tax for everyone. So I think. Yeah, we're still trying to get Bill to check his Skype settings. Better try me on the landline. I can't seem to get sound or mic. Okay, why don't we call Bill? Well, Nancy, why don't you go and check him real quick and fix it? I mean, it's pretty easy. You okay. should know how. And me and Danny will keep the folks okay, entertained. Okay, but meanwhile, so I'm going can... to give you his landline. Well, okay. I have his landline. Just just his go. Tr- trust okay. me, just go. We'll okay. keep the phones, folks entertained. Go. Just go. Get Get this fixed. Go. So, Danny, how about them dolphins? How about them Dolphins? Um, I had to take a break from football this week. 
to get prepped. So fill me in. What happened? Well, they lost again. Okay, well. That's pretty much it. That's all I got. I'm, I'm done. I'm tapped out. I'm off football because uh, the Saints have let me down uh, too many times here against uh, two very easy teams that they should have beat. So I'm taking a break from football. And that's all I got. I can't. I have no Skype at all. I mean, this is what I get on the screen. <laughs> now we can hear him. Yeah. he speaks. Danny's on the phone, right? Yeah. Hi, Bill. Okay. Hi, Bill. We can hear you. I know. All right, let's let's cut Bill off for a second because he can't hear us. And there's something worse than uh, having you know somebody do sound check right. on here. See, Danny, write this down. Yep. Take a note. All right, this is write this down. Okay. Put this in your notes. Going in. Sound check. It's a must. Thirty minutes before the show. An hour before the show, if you have An to. An hour before the show. You have to do it every time. And they told me they did it. They told me they did. And it was sounding good. Mm-hmm. Here's a, Put this also in your notes there, Danny. Don't have a bunch of windows open if you're far away from your browser's I'm not. router. See? Look. Got it. Hey, Bill. Can you hear me, Bill? Something wrong. Yeah, okay. And he keeps trying to jump in the call. <laughs> I'll <let> Bill. <laughs> oh man. See, it's not only Richard C. Hoagland that has these kind of technical issues, folks. So for all you out there who are so hard on Richard, it's not just him. It happens to the best of us. Well, it doesn't happen to me often, that's but it happens to a lot of folks, okay? Now check this out. If anybody wants to call in and join in on the fun here, uh by all means do so. Seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. Call in. This is Future Theater. This is all technical radio issue night. And I'm here joined by Danny. Okay, I think we've got it figured out. And Nancy's back. Is Bill here? Nope. Okay. He was trying to call you. <laughs> I know, and he no, he kept getting on. And then he would say, I, well, see, it's not working. He would say something. No, no, no call we'll him, ask him now. Bill, can you hear me? And he, he wouldn't answer. No, you have to Never call answered. him. He's going to answer now. That's, that's the thing. He was missing your call trying to call you. Right. Well, see, let's see that, how this works. It was conflicting. He was trying to call you. And that would start a whole chain of events that would block your call. Ah, it's a bunch of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. It's... Like- Logistics. It's all logistics. Yeah. Or or call either the landline or the cell phone. Either one is good. All right. Well, he, if he doesn't pick up, there's not much I could do for him. There, see, that's he? the thing. I, he seems to be missing your call. He doesn't see the little doohickey when it happens. And I just came back downstairs, and I'm not going back up. <laughs> try, the, try the cell phone or the landline. Yeah, but the cell phone sounds really bad. Well, try the landline. He's, that sounds he's, worse. No. Art, loves, Art loves landlines better than anything. Yeah, but he loves that when it's like a guest or a, a caller, you know, not when it's like But the it host. will be like it it'll be like but at least it's Bill. At least it's Bill. Yeah. We'll take Bill in any way we can. Because oh, well, you know we need him. He, he's definitely not picking up that line, so Which, the landline or the Skypey line? No, the Skypey line. There. I can hear the phone ringing. Oh, the phone right. is ringing. Live on air. The phone's ringing. Oh, we're on air? So professional. So professional. <laughs> uh, well, this and is, he's not, this now is... he doesn't pick that up either. Hello? I know. 
Hey, Bill. So here I am. Yeah, for some reason, the Skype was not working. Okay, did you check your Skype setting? Yeah, everything. everything well, now, was... now that we have you, let's really quickly, you were going to go through the transhumanist part that caught your eye. Yes, yes. In fact, that's the, oh, we'll stay on this line. The, um, the thing that caught my eye was I was in the middle of doing work with um, uh, John Lee Bill Scott on, on this whole issue, Joe Martin, of the whole issue of artificial intelligence <clears throat> and the premise that true artificial intelligence would someday would run rampant. And if it was running, if it were running rampant, what would it try to eliminate? And this whole thing goes to this extinction of the human species. Cause I really do believe that we're looking at the cusp of an extinction event. Right. So that was why this um, article that uh, Zoltan wrote about extending eternal life, and he was going through, and then he was going through um, all the pros and cons of it. Not so much the cons, but it's like, how do you account for growing population on Earth? Well, there would be human beings who would contribute their conscious, uh, their right, um, right. separate right into a machine. So you wouldn't have the uh, uh, the possibility of bodies. Um, soaking up atmosphere and oxygen. In other words, this sounds a lot to me like the first steps towards the matrix. Well, right. actually, actually, and instead of not. machines putting us in the matrix, no, we're just willingly following right into it. Well, That's what we're it sounds willingly, like to me. we're willingly staring at our iPhone and computers all day long. We've already begun the process. No, okay. no, 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 no one thing, no, one thing is using your phones, another thing is being stuck in a machine. No, where no, no, but the issue, you're not even a no, body. The issue anymore. is as we conform systems to ourselves as the systems amalgamate one of the things that steve jobs did was he sought to bring computers into a personal life in such a way that it wasn't just staring at a screen but it was interacting with the machine that almost became part of you hence the apple watch right so that's actually part of you it's actually you can read your blood glucose you can test your blood pressure well that, that's, that's what that's where transhumanism begins it begins when there's an artificial limb that enhances someone's life or you get an implant that say helps your heart to beat uh that's transhumanism because you're already part machine part human exactly and, right and there's nothing yeah, wrong with that but it's a, a much more extreme uh, think to say, oh, well, we're going to put everybody's conscious into a computer. Well, that's only a matter of time. If your body's going to go, you might be able to store your consciousness and wait for somebody else who wants to hook you into their body. Maybe people could carry two brains. Who knows in the future? But but the thing I ha- that I have yeah, to say I don't about, know about that, Nancy. The critical thing to know about Zoltan versus, say, Charles okay, Osman, after, is that Zoltan is very much an optimist. And I believe there are very few of them in this futuristic world. And I think the optimism is critical because it helps human nature have kind of a leg up over the pessimists who who are saying, oh, the machines are going to... And the optimism, I think, is... Well, you'll see. You'll see. He will simply show that that what's happening to our lives right now is a precursor. It's already happening. It's like the Internet. You're already on it. And the, yeah, and the fascinating thing about it is that what he's talking about is the span of time in our lifetimes, at least yeah, well, coming on the, the cusp of that in 20 years. 
That's the kicker. If you say 20 years, just about everybody who's alive could perhaps hang on for 20 years. So everyone within the sound of your voice could say, well, I could hang on for 20 years if this guy's saying just like um, the singularity guy, Kurzweil, uh, they're both saying in 20 years, it's all going to, you know, hit the fan. Um, And this is the optimistic side of that whole story. I think Charles is way more pessimistic. But I also want to point out one more thing. You all laugh when I say Gabcast, Gabcast. Well, there's a guy on Gabcast, and he used to come on Uh. Uh. (laughs) Bellahaven. And he used to come on Bellahaven, and I believe he has called into Art Bell and perhaps other shows. His his name on Gabcast is Sword Point Nine, and we know him as James. (laughs) Okay? Now, James... James uh, has suggested the worst-case scenario is perhaps closer than we think, and that's when the machines sort of become intelligent, but they have weapons. They have all our weapons. They might decide to start a war just to get rid of us. Well, even if the machines were to get rid of us, there are ways to do it without weapons. I mean, first of all, you begin to gradually shut down human systems. You shut down things like GPS. You shut down things like satellites. You shut down things like nah, health that's systems. Silly. That's no, just it silly. isn't. That would no. be that would be a, a benign great... way to nah. start to call the human race to a manageable group. Here, but here's the thing: with Zoltan, calling is the word that's just not going to come up because he. I believe. If you listen to Zoltan, it is possible for us to grow with the machines and be and keep all our humanity, but simply that's his, yeah, that's the transhumanist theory that it's not non-humanist or superhumanist; it's transhumanist. We're not afraid We're, of our phones, for example. Right. At all. Exactly. Even yeah. though, as as Mike was Mike Maloney was talking about in the show right before us. Um, we're walking around with phones that can hear us all the time. If you bought the Amazon Echo or Alexa item, it's yeah, always it's so on. Cool. Yeah, but it's always on and it's hearing, it's recording everything you say all the time. It has to because it's always on. It's waiting for you to say, Alexa. And Pony Boy in the show just before, podcast not included, she was saying that Unless you speak to Alexa with a very authoritative voice, you can't get like lazy and back on the couch saying, well, Alexa they don't record what you're saying. They're, they're just censored yeah. uh, to hear when you say the name. Yeah. It's like, for example, Windows 10 has uh, an option called Cortana. So you say, hey, Cortana, tell me a joke, and she'll tell you a joke. Now, the there's nothing extra installed. no privacy. <laughs> no, there's, no, there's nothing on. extra installed as recording anything. What it's doing is there's a voice sensor, so when you, name, when you call that name, she'll actually type out whatever it is that you're asking for on search on Google you're or Bing. You're in the paranormal field. You're in the paranormal field, and you have a paranormal radio. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm not paranoid. And you don't believe that these things are recording you. I do not believe it. And if they are, I don't care. It's not really getting well, anything that's loose. more to the point. What, what are they, again, oh, there's this darn game again. Oh, bring me my coffee. I mean, really, what are you getting? But the thing that Bill was just saying about uh, crippling, say, the GPS, there are, I would say, a huge percentage of people that would like to know all the old-timey skills anyway. And so if you cripple GPS, I think people go to maps pretty quickly. 
if you can find yeah. a map. I'd, it's I'd rather right, but it's not just it's not just a map. It's literally a voice telling you when to make your turn. So you don't really need a map. You don't have to look at a map on the screen. That's, no, no, no. I really if, hate GPS because I'm because there's a map in my face on the screen. I want to look at the road. I'm seeing the map. Plus, I can't see the map that well anyway. But whereas uh, the GPS with a voice. There you go. Make this turn. Make that turn. Your turn's coming up. Yeah, but that Spring wasn't Street. that. That wasn't. That's not the point I was making. You were talking about no that, one that the um, the satellites, you know, to hurt us, the machines might turn off our GPS. Yes, and, exactly. So it's GPS. And that I'm would saying turn it's off. no great great loss. If I if, mean that means planes would have a problem um, because think how much the planes rely on GPS now. But they didn't always, and we can no go back. right. But what I'm saying is the human race has evolved to rely yes. on a network of, of electronics to get us through a lot of things we did 50 years ago in a different way. Now, either we would have to relearn those skills, or if that population has, for the most part, died off, I think we're the but, last of but, that but generation. Let me, let me, what about Angel's uh, immersing himself in a game for, what, let's just say, many days? Right. Well, that's all many that months. That's all, that is also a part of transhumanism because you're actually playing in a digital world. You're not playing in the real world. It's you're like a, a waking, digital world. It's like a waking dream. But right, and the, real, and the digital world encompasses you. Look at the new techniques with Microsoft um, being able to read body motion and wearing a helmet that's, a, uh, that's um, a virtual reality. You are in the machine's reality. The machine's reality is reaching out through instrumentality and human attachments to envelop you. And we're actually fighting wars. We are now fighting transhumanist wars. The F-35, Charles will laugh at the F-35, we talked about that this afternoon, but the F-35 fighter puts the pilot in a virtual world with respect to his targets. It's the computer that picks the targets. Mm -hmm. It's the computer that sets up certain kinds that's of things. What, that's and what James pilot. has a, a lot to say about. And also, that's what uh, Zoltan expects you to be talking about, I think. So just Right, and it's the computer. And, and, and literally, pilots are sharing targeting information with their planes and the ground or someplace else via their helmets that are part of the plane. So you're in a virtual world while you're fighting a war. Right. By the way, uh, Gary Anderson from Australia, who's listening all the way from the Aussie, uh, he wants to uh, say that uh, he wants to know about Zoltan's uh, opinion on disclosure, and also he's been abducted, so he wants to know his opinion on the abduction. Yes, Zoltan has talked about abduction, mm -hmm. yes. So we've got to bring that up later on tonight. He yeah. has. Well, I don't want to, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't even bother with disclosure, because I really think that it's a false it's a false flag basically i think it is a false flag and 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 gary and we've already had we've already had disclosure in the united states in 1950 president harry truman said these are flying saucers and we know what they are in 1966 and then we forgot and then, then we forgot it. and gerald ford formally introduced to the house um, science committee Right. that um, a study of UFOs and the Project Blue Book people really condemned him for that, but that's what he did. Right. And, and in 1978, the House Committee uh, took uh, a, a James McDonald's report on UFOs. And Ronald Reagan twice went public 
by saying that he had, he saw a UFO once over the Mojave Desert, once over PCH in California, and he told the whole group at Bill Holden's surprise party that he and Nancy had just seen a UFO. That was Ronald Reagan, Jerry Ford, Jimmy Carter filed a UFO report admitting that he had seen a UFO. That's disclosure. Then if right. you go through the, and, well, then, the whole... The idea of a disclosure movement means somehow that there's a, a they who somehow or another have the the keys to the kingdom and we're waiting for them to disclose when in fact we've gone we've done an end around we right. are disclosing it ourselves as that's we've true also stuff. that's true also so you've had disclosure officially and you've had disclosure that uh, that we're doing ourselves then I mean even now Stephen Greer is promoting this. Um, this JFK transcript, which is, or which is, and that's been around forever, that JFK transcript. Yeah, folks, if you're sending money to these places, um, you know, Lord, Lord love you, because I hope you're getting good stuff in return. Um, because I think a lot of this is just money-making opportunities, but we won't name names, of course. Cause I mean, Rick and I talked so. about the Marilyn Monroe transcript about... Um, Area 51, and, and she calls them little men from space, all the way back in our book, Dr. Feelgood. And I talk about that in UFO Hunters, book one and book two. So, right, I mean, and day after Roswell has uh, Project Horizon. Exactly. Right. And yeah. a lot of people are making hay about that. That's the actual um, paper that the military created to put a base on the moon in 1957, this was. You say, so right. yeah, we don't remember our history, and um, you know that that is a problem. But break, break, break. Indeed. Okay, so we will do a quick break. Uh, we will be back with our guest Zoltan Istvan after these messages from the Dark Matter Digital Network. We are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live, and we'll be back on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network. F with our guest after these messages. Professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London. 
and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The death of Princess Diana. I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. Uh, the UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who, you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They had very large eyes, and, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and capricornmembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic, truth is truth. We are back on Future Theater Live with our guest, Zoltan Istvan, and we are thrilled to be able to have him here with us tonight. So, hi, Zoltan. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, we're just thrilled you could make it. Um, uh, I read an article. Uh, first of all, how is your presidential campaign going? You know, I got to be honest, it's, it's really exploding in size. So I must admit it's going fantastic. I'm surprised by how big it's grown. And uh, I'm I'm very excited. We're at the height of uh, a high, certainly the height of the campaign right now. Well, were you were you surprised at the interest? Because uh, you you have articles appearing everywhere, and there are chapters of the transhumanist. 
Mm, have we have we lost poor Bill? And there goes starting Bill. up in different places. Oh. Oh. Were you surprised at the effect after? Nope, I'm still here, right? You're, I uh, still hear you. You're, 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 you left and then you came back. Keep going. Okay, yeah, this no. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, my question is, I. We're no, never going to get to the Skype, question. Uh, Skype's question. <laughs> no, yeah. the question is, is, uh, is this. Were you surprised at the um, interest, the level of interest in the Transhumanist Party and your policy platform? I- indeed. So, well, you know, it, it's hard to say. On one hand, of course, I was interested um, in how, how big the Transhumanist Party platform and how it was received in the media became – in virtually a year. I mean, we spread out in 20 countries now. You know, there are, it's become kind of the, the highlight of the transhumanist movement, speaking about the transhumanist party. But at the same time, it's kind of very natural because it's not just really about the transhumanist party, it's about how far technology and science has come. I mean, every day you look at the news, there's some type of new invention that is absolutely radically changing what it means to be a human being. So, we just happened to arrive at right at the, the precise, perfect moment when we were able to capture a lot of the attention and hopefully lead the, the world and the, and the country down a better path in trying to explain what radical science and technology means in the world. Well, well so, Zoltan, how did you get involved with this transhumanism yourself? Well, you know, I have been really actively um, pursuing it since I've been about 20 years old. When I was uh, in college, I read a, a, um, an article in Time Magazine about cryonics where they freeze people in hopes to bring them back to right. life uh, when science has uh, you know, come around in 50 years. And um, I, was, I converted right away. I was like, "Gow, this is exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I, I didn't want to die, and I wanted to uh, use science to make sure I didn't have to die. So I've been following the movement for decades, but it really wasn't until I became um, about 35 when I wrote my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, that I sort of emerged as a as a figure in the movement. And, uh, and you know, since then, I've been popularizing everything I can through my columns and also through just uh, being the presidential candidate. Well, why did you choose fiction? I know uh, I listened to Joe Rogan and he did a great interview with you. I think you both came to new places because it was a long, friendly interview. But um, and yeah. <laughs> and then it just lost. Unlike other interviews that he's done. Well, I just lost Joe my right. No, 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 yeah. because we think of, the, uh, of that interview. Um, yeah, yeah, it just, it's, what it's would you say, burning what in my heart say, for Bill. What would yeah, you say? Joe Rogan was mean to Bill, so. I don't, oh, oh, what would you say? What would you say is probably the most radical aspect of your view of transhumanism? I mean, I have my idea, but what about you? Well, you know, I, uh, uh, there's a lot of different radical aspects, but. Let's just focus on the one that is actually here today because I think most people want to talk about mind uploading. But, you know, sure. that's still 10, 15 years out in the future. But let's talk about the CRISPR technology gene editing, which China did about five, six months ago. And now we officially on planet Earth have the ability to edit the human genome. And that means probably within a couple of years, we may start experimenting with improving the IQ of the human being. We certainly can already do hair color and eye color and all those other things. So can you imagine like I have two children? One's a five-year-old and one's an 18-month-old. But if I have another in, let's say, five years, that one might get this augmented intelligence. How are the others going to feel? Well, this, this brings up incredibly uh, strange and eth- you know, controversial ethical implications. What if you have children your children are literally 30% smarter than you, not because of your genes, but because you were able to use some type of technology to make them smarter? And of course, is it going to be expensive? Will only the, the rich people be able to afford it? So, this is perhaps the most controversial transhumanist technology 
on the planet right now. I'm amazed the other presidential candidates are not talking about it because it's something that is going to be very widespread, I believe, in the next five to 10 years. And if America says no to doing it, well, other countries will say yes, and then they'll have smarter kids. So I would say that's easily the most controversial topic right now in the, in the transhumanist world. So do you foresee, so do you foresee, I mean, this, I'm ba- this is a bait question, but this has been raised, so it's legitimate. Do you foresee various classes of individuals really in a post-eugenics world? And we're really talking about eugenics. Oh, this is eugenics. And, you know, I'm, I'm of the kind of point of view that eugenics, yes, I understand historically speaking in the 19th century, 20th century, it's been a very, very negative word. But maybe in the 21st century, we can turn it into a positive word. And I believe that if we can make this available to all people, and certainly my presidential candidacy, we lean left, we would say, if you're going to have some people become smarter, you need to make that technology available to everyone. If they can't afford it, then the government needs to step in and somehow allow everyone to have it. So I would like to say that anyone that wants this technology should have complete access to it if we're going to make it um, available to anyone at all. And that way, people can really choose. Uh, you know, we have this concept called morphological freedom. You get to do with your body whatever you want to do, so long as it's not hurting somebody else. It's a classic transhumanist um, ideology. And I would right. say, yeah, let's embrace this, even if we call it eugenics. Maybe eugenics doesn't have to be such a loaded negative term. Maybe well, in the you future also it's changed, be- You also dropped and changed the word uh, immortality to a more, let's say, a more reasonable term of what well i yeah i say indefinite lifespans because immortality is a i mean i use it on my bus of course on my national campaign tour bus but you know it's a challenging word and many transhumanists feel that the word immortality is very misleading we like to use indefinite lifespans or just you know overcoming aging overcoming death That's right. And as you said uh, to Joe Rogan in this case, uh, living well and making sure the planet is supporting all the good things that are happening in your life, it's just a completely good universe. You would choose to live here longer if you could. And it it is kind of counter to religion, um, which the atheist movement itself is one of the biggest, fastest growing movements in the United States. So I think people are ready for these messages. Oh, I mean, when you, in fact, I just read an article today said, you know, they think in the next few years, 50% of the millennial generation will be godless. I mean, this is, we're now, we're not talking a few million people anymore. We're now talking tens of millions of Americans that will, you know, be nuns or at least not be, you know, uh, saying, I believe to this religion or not. Um, this is major, and I, I believe we're going to eventually enter into this kind of non-religious, secular world where everyone can kind of think more in terms of science and more in terms of rationality than we've ever been thinking before. Because as you can imagine, transhumanism and living forever go right in the face of, of most religious concepts, which yeah, means – but, but, but since you also totally are for taking all kinds of drugs – Surely you must realize or suggest that being godless doesn't mean being without God. If you, God permeates everything for some people. It's a very spiritual mm, world. No, Nancy, being godless doesn't mean being without God. That's what I'm saying. It shouldn't mean <laughs> being without God. It means God is everywhere. It's not just in this one church. 
Well, you know, I take a quasi-spiritual point of view, to be honest. I, I mean, I, I promote myself as an atheist, but I'm certainly an, an agnostic deep down inside. I think anyone that says otherwise is, 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 is hard to prove that. But the truth of the matter is it's probably okay to incorporate these giant spiritual ideas into everything we do, including transhumanism. But I think if you're going to take a Judeo-Christian or an Abrahamic man with a, a beard and a lightning bolt, that's something that I think is just too far-fetched at least for my personal campaign. Well, also a pacemaker is the is the closest thing we've got right now to a man body man machine one oneness. You and your your pacemaker and mm. even uh, I know we we're having a problem with Bill. He's not on, right? Yes, I am. Okay. okay. And um <laughs> The pacemaker is the easiest thing for, I guess, even severe. Uh, do, do kosher people allow for pacemakers? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, pacemakers are part and parcel. There are pacemakers. There are these um, um, interior diabetic pumps, which basically monitor your blood glucose, monitor your body activity, and adjust, and this mainly for type 1 diabetics, but adjust the insulin in your bloodstream based on uh, your daily activity and your diet. And so, quite frankly, we are living with that now. Uh, There are all kinds of implants human beings have. uh, And he's gone. I have an implant in my hand. Things like that (laughs) that really are. Wow. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, you were gone for a second, but while you were gone, Zoltan said that he, He were you joking? Were you joking, no, Zoltan? No, not at all. I, I, I got a, a chip implant in my hand. It does a number of different functions. I've been traveling the South on my, in, in literally the Bible Belt South, in my, um, and talking a lot about it. It's been very interesting to see the reactions. Um, the, frankly, I thought I would be uh, not well received in the Bible Belt, but mostly people are very curious and very interesting. And I, I got to say, I'm writing an article right now about how friendly. Uh, many Christians and many very really? religious people have been to me. It's it's been ironic and it's been surprising to me, but that's been my experience in the well, last three I, weeks. That's the one movie. Uh, following the links to your page, that's the one movie I didn't want to watch because it's probably gory. They probably show it's probably a, a six inch chip and it's probably an inch around and they jam it into your body. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's jammed into my brain. No, no, it's, it's the, the chip <laughs> I better. have is a is the size of a grain of rice. It, it takes three seconds. It's in, injected through a needle. It's literally a three-second procedure, and they just put it into the tissue of your hand, and that's it. And then you can kind of like do all sorts of things. Like you can start your car if you have the right software with it. You don't need keys. You can enter into multiple security areas if it's programmed properly. In the future, probably the next six months, you're going to be able to pay with it. So there's a number of different types of uh, things and that are very useful. How can I sign up for this chip? How can I sign up? I'm you down. just go online and type in RFID, uh, you know, chip or NFC chip. Uh, um, they're they're all over the place. A few thousand people have had them, and more well, and more are doing it every day. It's um, you know these how, chips. Are, go on. Brilliant idea, Nancy. Well, just how hard is it to remove this chip? Well, you know, Nancy, I got to be honest. I do not <laughs> know that the answer, but it's it's in my hand. It's only in about you know maybe uh, a centimeter, so I can't imagine it's too hard. But it I, it would definitely take a doctor. Well, this is the well, scene, the third scene, the third chapter in X Files. Any X Files, you're going into the men's room and you're going to rip the thing out yourself because the men in black are outside your door. Now, Zoltan, since you've had the chip installed in you, have you had any uh, weird moments where you just feel like out of touch or uh, not in sync with, you know, maybe your your thoughts are you know, a bit scrambled? Uh, 
Yep. No, <laughs> not, not at all. So you have to understand this thing is so tiny. It's really, it's like a grain of rice. It's hard to see. And, um, of course, it, I have not felt anything different. In fact, I forgot from the from the first few hours of having it in because it, barely, it doesn't even really bleed. Uh, the person mm. who put it in me had to actually squeeze to get some blood out. So mm. um, it's very non-intrusive. Well, how do you how do you start your car mm. with it? What's the procedure? Well, you have to download. You have to bring first off some kind of a mechanical application. So instead of having a key thing, you would have a kind of a, a thing that reacts to your chip and says, mm. okay, start it electronically, and then you have to wave your hand about three inches from it, and of course you have to program it with your cell phone, and then you wave your hand, and it will start up automatically. And I actually, I don't have the software on my bus, but I did see someone at the place that I got it um, do this for me, do this for his car. Mm-hmm. It's a little extreme that you get chipped just to turn on your car. I mean, no, you no, good old-fashioned just turning that's on your all. car. But, no, but, but the question Angel is <laughs> not asking is the next question, if this were, let's say, a lower class show. If somebody would <laughs> cut your hand off, as in a Schwarzenegger movie, and and that's a good question. I know you know, and and, ra- <laughs> and would the chip still work if it wasn't connected to a live body? Yes, one hundred percent. It would still. Wow! Work. Wow! Yeah. Wow! So that could be dangerous because somebody could just cut your of hand off. Yet. I haven't thought oh, yeah. about that yet. <laughs> I hope you have well, your I... bank account down there, Zoltan, because uh, if not, and does it? I wanted, and yeah. does the chip react uh, in airport scans? So it does not, which is very interesting. It does not react, and nobody has found it yet. So that's one of the big benefits of it. But nobody has found it. Well, yeah, nobody has registered it as I've gone through the X-ray machines. No, wow, fly all the time. But one thing is very interesting is I've heard that instead of having a, for example, a digital uh, airline ticket, you'll just be able to use your hand and say, "Look, this is my ticket," and instead of pulling out your driver's license and instead of showing your thing, you just wave your hand. Hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on, Nancy. Before you continue, before you continue, this just gave me a brilliant idea. Me too. Just think, just think of the too. possibilities. Future, in the in the future, no, hold on. In the future, we all could do Jedi mind tricks. Just wait. No, your hand. worse. <laughs> terrorist. If a terrorist has this implanted and it can't be seen on the uh, scanner going onto the plane, what's to stop the thing from blowing up the plane? These are not the terrorists you're looking for, Nancy. No, no, no. Couldn't a chip? ignite a bomb just if it can start a car it could absolutely but you know i mean the harder part is getting the actual bomb on board i hope so (laughs) unless it's an inside job and it's in the uh, luggage compartment wow no but even go ahead i have a twisted mind i know well i was going to say of course you know you've seen a number of movies where the chips can explode but i have to say years of 24 yes this chip is so tiny honestly it's like it's really hard to see. And that's when you ask the question, would it be easy to be extracted? And the, the real answer is probably not because it's so small. Unless you had a fluoroscope. But uh, the, uh, the, um... but what about alien I- implants uh, that abductees say they have? Have you ever heard about that, Zoltan? Uh, you know, I've heard about it. I don't really subscribe to conspiracy theory, but I am a big believer in probably other intelligences um, existing in the, on the universe. I mean, after all, there might be two billion habitable planets out there, so it's possible. Mm. Zoltan, actually, this brings us to a question that one of our listeners, Gary from uh, Australia, had um, about your opinion on the disclosure movement that's been going on and uh, about uh, have you been abducted yourself? Um, not that I'm aware of at all, but I am a big believer, and I'm, I'm also the creator of this kind of new idea of religion, which okay. is theocidism. Um, it's this idea that 
God or an, a superintelligence may have existed, but at some point it actually ended its existence in order to guarantee free will for the rest of the universe, for anyone, any other intelligence in the universe. So it's a strange concept that, uh, you know, transhumans believe in the singularity. And the singularity basically is this, an entity through artificial intelligence reaches this point in time when uh, technology grows exponentially, you know, way beyond our understanding right now. Our IQ might be a million times more than it, what it is now. But the reality is that this may have already happened. Um, and if it has already happened, it means that there would be an intelligence out there that's incredibly more, uh, you know, incredibly smarter than us. But the real question is, would that en entity continue to live indefinitely? And would it be controlling us? And also, if it knew everything, would that give us any free will? So this philosophy that I've created. Well, it would if you didn't know. Well, it would if you didn't know what it knew. So in 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 your matrix, you have completely free will. Um, if you look at this from the point of view of just pure physics and chemistry, at the moment of the Big Bang, everything came into to existence. And if right. everything came into existence, all the physical forces came into existence, all the gravitational, chemical, biological forces came into existence, not at the same moment, but the process that began them came into existence. So as a result, every single thing that happens was predetermined by that mix in the Big Bang. We aren't aware of that because we weren't there. We were only there in a component form. And now we're in a corporeal form. So we may exercise all of our proclivities, but we exercise them within the constraints of our. And he's gone. We always lose <laughs> the point of our biological it's a, it's nature. It's the big words. Nature. So we yeah. are in a sense pre -programmed. So weird. No, I'm here. No, can you hear okay. me now? Yes. Yes, we heard, it we heard most up. of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So since I'm here. Okay. And we're. <laughs> also coming up on the hour of three minutes to go yep well i would just say that it's very possible that an entity somewhere after the big bang emerged and decided to change the direction of the universe and you may say well oh that was pre-programmed from the beginning but uh, it's also possible um that it wasn't that it is something that it grew big enough to reverse all the universe and all the, the quarks and subatomic particles and everything of it. And maybe, and this is where theocytism comes in, maybe mm -hmm. that thing would have ensured that no other entity, such as ourselves, could ever um, reach its state or reach a state of omnipotence, in which case it would always have free will. But, uh, of course, this gets into strange metaphysics and way beyond the scope, well, I guess, the of way you normal described, The way you described a normal human being reacting to being able to extend her life, let's just say, on and on and on. After a while, as you get more and more um, implants and you can have your senses are expanded exponentially, you feel as though you become like a god. And you described it very, very, very poignantly. Almost as if you go all the way up to all these powers, suddenly God is bored and, um, you know, basically throws chaos into the mix or something. Um, well, you know, it, and it's very interesting because boredom is one of the most difficult metaphysical concepts for philosophers to wrap their, their minds around and their logic around because – it, it kind of throws off everything. So mm -hmm. to be honest with you, I don't have all the answers for boredom. I've worried about this and wondered about this for literally uh, decades. Mm -hmm. 
Indeed. Indeed. It, boredom is, boredom feels evil. It feels as though it comes from the dark side. Um, you just feel you're in a bad place. Um, you've lost your enthusiasm. You've lost your basic will to live, which seems to be, if it's all yin and yang, this is the, this is the, the, you know, the bright side of the pump. You, you know, uh, you long and, for it. And that's happening now. I mean, um, you're seeing two major demographics really at the point of self extinction, not self extinction, complete extinction. But at the self of self annihilation, uh, white working class males from, let's say, 35 to 50 years old, middle aged, and your uh, 15 to 29 year olds, where suicide is the second largest cause of death. For males or for all children? For the young ones? For all, for, yeah, for young ones. Uh, that's all children, but mostly males. Males are the preponderant cohort in that. And it's scary. I mean, what are we looking at that this is going on? These are self inflicted wounds. Yeah, well, the the whole thing is, you know, is obviously interesting. I hope that technology may help us overcome this boredom issue. Perhaps if technology always continues growing in an expanding universe, maybe uh, the true entities will never or the, the highest entities will never, ever get bored. But, of course, that that is pure speculation. Well, so as long as I have my PS4 and uh, my Blu-ray <laughs> movies. I'll be and good. that's what, exactly what God said. And thus, there's us. That's what he said. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what he said. Yeah. Okay, I want to well, have we're the is, Sims. Yes, Sim, we we are Sims. Yeah, we, we are. are. Sure. No, I, and I, soon we'll and soon we'll all be in the Matrix, isn't that right? Of, of so course. This is the top the, of the, the hour, so I wanted to thank Sultan. For- we keep losing Bill. We're going to have to probably reconnect with Bill on the phone at the other half of the with Charles, right. but we'll I mean, see. Now I'm back. I can hear you now. Okay. <laughs> oh <laughs> so man. Sad. Yeah. Well, okay, thank so you so I much. Know, it's just winking in and out. So Zoltan is gone. Thank you, Zoltan. No, Zoltan is still here. Thank yeah. you, Zoltan. No, my no, Bill, you're Thank gone. you, everyone, for having me on the show. It's I'll continue listening, and I I appreciate you having me. It's been this has been a great, fun, philosophical conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Zoltan. Well, I hope you can. Yeah, I hope you can come back and if stay a little like, longer. If you'd yeah. like to stay, if you. And he's gone again. Uh, okay. So well. Okay. I, I... <laughs> Well, thank thank you so much. I'm going to actually get back to my kids, but if I can check in a little bit later, I shall. But I will listen, and uh, and it, it's been wonderful, and I appreciate it. And uh, you guys, it's been a lot of fun. Thank okay, you, Zoltan. If you'd like to thank check you. in, please do. We'll be here with Charles Ostman. Okay, I will do so. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it, gals. Thank you, Zoltan. Good luck on your campaign. Bye, bye. All righty. So what can we do awkward. to make What can we do to make Bill not be I'm fading in and out? Get him closer to the router. He's on a Wi-Fi. That's the problem. No, let's see here. No, no, no. No, no that is works, the problem. No, this works perfectly. I mean, um, yes, but not for what si- you're doing no, right now. I've I've got a full signal. I mean, I can. I see understand it. that, but I understand that, but Wi-Fi is not very stable, Bill. You can have full signal and still have dropouts like you're having. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, okay, well. Yeah. Well, so let's go to break, and we'll come back with our next guest. You mean right. this has been live? All of this has been live. Bill oh never let us out. Bill has to lead okay. us out. Go ahead, Bill. Lead us out. And that's how people, okay, that's what I mean when I say you yell at us a lot. <laughs> okay, so we are your co-host, Bill. This Nancy B. It's mild yelling. Very we are, that, was not even, that was not yelling. Yeah. We are, and are he's gone connecting again. and be back with our guest, <laughs> Charles. And gone. So, okay, are we out or are we still in? I have no idea anymore. But you're the producer. You're the guy. 
with I have knobs. no clue. You have oh. buttons. You have knobs. All right, hold on. <clears throat> Let me do something here. Everybody knob. listening in, stick around. Future Theater will be right back after oh, no. these messages. that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. 4,734 UFO sightings in 2007. about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from the public knowledge for years and only one trusted source on information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted, connected, accurate. TheUFOStore.com Expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more supermanhomepage.com here's a riddle for you what do the california gold rush of the 1850s secret societies coded messages mysterious 19th century flying machines and an early 20th century outside artist named charles a a delshaw all have in common the secrets of delshaw by dennis crenshaw and pete navarro go to www 
secretsofdellshaw.com to learn more. With our guest Charles Osman, futurist Charles Osman, commenting on a lot of things tonight, uh, specifically artificial intelligence, living forever, uploading human being consciousness to machines, all kinds of things. So thanks for joining us, Charles. Absolutely. Always fun to be here. So we were having a conversation today, and we just had one with Zoltan Istvak, um, who is part of the transhumanist? He's running for president of the United States on the transhumanist party. <laughs> okay, I love it. Why not? Why not? That's uh, what I said. And and oh. gone. Uh, He'll be back in two seconds. Uh, One. Okay. There he goes. Bill. That, that human beings could live. I'm here. That human beings could live um, for an indefinite period with all kinds of prosthetics, with implants, with science, basically not just reversing the aging process, but prolonging the. Uh, so that's that theory, and he uh, his policy is, that is the theory to take to take money that we now spend on wars. And take that money and apply it to longevity and transhumanism in you know what guys Te- technology being what it tries to be yeah you're yeah. sort of cutting i'm so sorry about this you're cutting in and out and my i'm on i'm on comcast broadband so i, I it should be working here events well, you're sort of popping I, no charles you sound great it's not okay, okay. I Fair think, enough. um if angel could call bill back on the landline it would make everybody happy i think because it works <laughs> and it, there's no cutting out <laughs> okay. How about Bill calls me so I don't have to like dial a number on air again? I, I just find well, it. I, perf- I just find it wonderfully, perfectly ironic that you know I live in the <laughs> world of quantum computing and sort of biological metaphors of computing on a meta scale, and yet can't get a phone to work. I, I, you know what I'm saying, Charles? Even in the future, nothing works. What the hell? <laughs> well, Charles, Back to the future too already passed. You know what I'm saying? We're in the future, baby. So, Things are supposed to work better than this. Medium at best depends on what dimensions that you're in. So hey, wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. That's all it is. I would like to ask the scary question that is kind of it will be in the background of all the whole show unless I ask it up front. And that is there's been some paranoid discussions that the machines that our government uses to uh, to find the target, things in drones, stuff like that. Those machines are way more intelligent than we know about. And it's not good. Have you well, heard it, any such yes, thing? Yes, no, I, I actually, it's something I am sort of familiar with, and, and this will take a little bit of discussion, so forgive me if I branch into several sort of parallel threads at once, but, it, you know, pe- the, the description of AI is not a single thing, really. It's, it's, a, it's a spectrum of processes, and I was explaining this to Bill a, a bit earlier, actually, in some of our off-air discussions. Um, there is no one exact way to describe what AI really is. I use the term artificial life as a, perhaps a better way to capture that idea. 
And what I mean by that is that living things, uh, us and other living things, are really a collection of different types of organs or organelles. Even within a cell, you have different organelles that specialize in different types of metabolic processes to fulfill the physiological interest of the, of the larger entity, whether it's a cell right. or a entire organ or you know, different organs, etc. So yeah. AI can be seen very much in the same context. So it's really a matter of different kinds of both input information, you know, sensory, sub- sensory system supply information, human beings being part of that process, but only part of it, and then the evolutionary platform and or the quantum computing platform, or some combination thereof, derives its own sort of best set of options to work with, considering the type of thing it's been trained to understand. And the area where it gets a bit fuzzy, and I'm sorry for the bad pun because fuzzy logic is part of this, um, is, you know, in, in a very sort of simple way, how do, you desc- how do you describe what an appropriate target really is? Well, it mm-hmm. depends on what the AI understands is its potential mission. Mm-hmm. Is the potential mission to simply destroy the target in question? Is the mission to destroy the target under certain rules of engagement? Or is the mission to, in a larger scale, sort of protect the interest that it thinks has the highest priority? And, of course, as you can imagine, the ethical boundaries of what we might consider to be ethical or maybe moral uh, sort of standards for measurement may or may not be the same as what the AI determines it to be, and it may do so on its own without telling us what it's intending to do. Well, is the AI at that level at this point? It can actually think on its own? There are different camps out there with different strategies for approaching this sort of event horizon of sorts. But I would certainly say that pieces of that puzzle are there. And certainly the desire to push at this is very strong. Now, whether or not we have things in the field at this moment that do this exactly, that could be questioned. But we're certainly pushing at this very quickly. And the right. idea I was going to suggest to you is that it's not just AI in a single piece of machinery. I think there's a kind of a misnomer here. Most people tend to think, at least in the sort of Kurzweilian singularity. And by the way, I've, I've, actually, I've actually spoken to the Singularity University. I've, I've talked to Ray quite a few times. I've been to a number of the Singularity Summits in the past. So I'm kind of familiar with that particular flavor of AI as, as it's described. But a lot of people tend to visualize it as a single machine or, or something that looks maybe human-like or walks around but, and talks. But just, and has, just to clarify, yeah. since you're familiar, yeah. didn't Kurzweil get the idea from Werner Vinge? Werner, Werner Vinge was probably one of the original real sort of pioneers of this thought or this, this sort of philosophical construct that describes AI as it was seen to be going back 25, 30 years or more. And for of course the, to go back even further, I mean there was the there, there's something called weak AI versus strong AI, mm-hmm. and one can debate this uh, endlessly, of course. But my version or how I my opinion is that strong AI is something that is much more autonomous, evolutionary, and fully independent of a requirement to adhere to a set of rules or to a. In the early days, you had bots, you know, things that would sort of mimic what looks like behavior. But it was really just a very clever series of algorithms that would simply have sort of uh, stimulus versus response, uh, sort of ways of looking like what seems to be human conversation or something that resembles thought. But it really wasn't thought. It was just a very clever uh, logic diagram of sorts. In In the different way, in strong AI, what you're really doing is getting away from that completely and getting much more towards something that actually really does behave like an organism. That is, it will... 
recognize certain kinds of stimuli and then evolve its own best strategy. And evolutionary computing, by the way, it's been around for a very long time. There's actually an annual conference called the Gecko Conference. I'm not kidding. It's the genetic and, and uh, sorry, the, <laughs> I can't even talk anymore. It's, it's the, it's, essentially, it's a collection of genetic and evolutionary computational um, schools of thought. Well, is, of, the, is the evolutionary technology, is it still programmed in a language that's human understandable? Well, no, and that's what I was getting at, and I'm so sorry for not sort of bumping around this. The The idea of evolutionary computing in general is that instead of s- describing a series of operational operands, you know, if, then, do this, et cetera, exactly. um, this is something quite different. The general idea is you describe a series of conditions, a goal, as it were, to sort of aim at, and then the evolutionary platform will continue to sort of poke at this goal and even if it makes lots of errors at first, which it will, it will sort of successively evolve better ways of matching that potential. It's what's called fitness curve matching to sort of match whatever that eventual goal is supposed to be. So a way of looking at it is this. In natural evolution, it takes you know, many millennia, actually millions of years really, to evolve you know, complex organisms over many trial and error sort of sessions of genetic remodification. In a sense, you're compressing time. In an evolutionary computing platform, you can shrink millions of years of evolution down to a handful of weeks or even a handful of days or even hours. It depends on which kind of platform you're using. And the, the art form is that people will describe a goal set. They'll provide a series of inputs and then sort of back away. And, and wouldn't the sit. goal seem to the machine to be something primitive? Actually, I, I'll, John Koza, who was the um, department chair of computer science at Stanford for many years, who actually was one of the real pioneers of this sort of evolutionary computing as a, as, a, as a commoditized process, he actually went to Wall Street. And a lot of the hedge fund people uh, <laughs> essentially adopted his particular version of evolutionary computing to drive a lot of the trading systems that are actually used to this very day. That's just one sl- thin example. Um, Again, well, do, uh, these these systems don't exhibit any kind of morality. Um, they well, simply. I would, have I would to... agree with you. I would agree with you. In fact, the first time I went on the air with Art Bell in '96, I believe, he asked a quite the first thing he asked was he said, "Well, Charles, if you have these systems which evolve their own best strategy to respond mm-hmm. to a variety of stimuli, especially given that I, I tend to see it that evolution tends to be a trauma in this process. That is." As long as the periodicity and amplitude of the trauma cycles don't exceed the system capacity to respond, mm-hmm. it will come back either more robust or simply perish in the process. And this is what evolutionary platforms are designed to do, whether it's trading systems on the market or you know driving. Well, currents. it sounds it sounds like a ship trying to get through maybe a superwave. Well, may sure, or may not make it through. It's a, the superwave. It feels like chaos to the ship, which right. is a structure. Yeah. Uh, but you may. So, and, so and, and is, just so just so folks know, Bill's um, having a hard time getting connected but, tonight. Oh, but I'm so. here. So can you hear me oh. now? I'm on the phone. Yeah, yes. here I am. Good. Okay. I'm just listening because I um, we had talked about this this afternoon, and uh, this is an evolutionary moment in humanity. I mean, yeah, this is exactly true. what we just talked about in the first half hour, where we have to decide. Human beings have to decide what our relationship is to machines. Is this an amalgamation moment? Or is this an aggregation moment? Or how do we define ourselves? Because if we don't, our generations will. And if they well, don't, then our machines will. Well, so this is the answer I was going to provide. I hope tried to provide. So the answer I gave to Art in 96 was whatever the AI systems of that time 
recognize, whatever the evolutionary computing platforms of that time recognize as the input stimulus. So that is human behavior and all the sorts of things that it will be fed into. That's what it's going to become. In other words, if we now have sort of metascale uh, organic-like mechanisms running our networks, running all of our information processing, certainly driving our financial networks and many cases, military and processes. That, and that's where I think there really are morals. I think, well, for well, example... Uh, well, so let me... Let me well, look, look, at, look at Google. Google well, starts out I, by saying, we don't want to be evil. Well, I, I'm not defending any of this. Believe me, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not taking a side. I'm just presenting things as I seem to be. So the answer would be, if given the unfortunate dark nature of the human condition in many cases, and we see plenty of examples of it even today, will the evolutionary platforms that are operating in this realm interpret what it sees as negative human behavior, and I couldn't argue against that too strongly, um, will it respond accordingly? It'll learn from what it sees. That, mm -hmm. That's the answer I'm going to provide. So in other words, if human beings in general present a higher standard of ethical behavior, then that's what the AI engines will interpret and they'll respond accordingly. However, if they perceive that the moral or ethical bar is pretty low, it's going to resort to whatever it interprets as the best way to deal with a low ethical bar. And well, that's so will... funny, Charles, because what you just described was part of the plot for the motion picture Forbidden Planet, where literally the, right, the AI machine that the Krill people yep. uh, created actually picked up their id, and so it became their id. Their darkest fears were right. impressed in the engrams of that machine. That's exactly correct, and that was done in 1959, by the way. I mean, that's, you know, when, when you think about this, there, I mean, Richard Finman actually pointed at this rather correctly. A, a lot of very, very smart people, far smarter than myself, saw this in their time and tried to, in their own specific way, suggest we should probably have a second, third, and fourth look at this. And part, and part of the Forbidden Planet, by the way, was... They had nanotechnology. They had a giant fusion reactor buried in the ground that drove this fantastic energy system that could then create anything that the Krell could dream of. In other words, their, their vision was if they could have whatever they wanted, no matter what it was, anything they could possibly dream of, it would solve all their social problems, all, all of their freedom from greed, freedom from want, all their avarice, all their sort of darker behaviors would suddenly become moot because they could just have whatever they want. However, as you so correctly point out, it mm -hmm. wasn't that that did them in. It was the monsters of the id, you know, the famous line from the show. So, I mean, the point is we still have those monsters of the id, quite a, quite a, much more so than the crow probably did. So are we ready to allow ourselves to be um, sort of symbiotically enmeshed with this other type of life form? I'm not sure we are, but it doesn't really matter because it's part of the evolutionary path. I, I would suggest to you, just like Forbidden Planet suggested, this is a common feature of you know many other worlds. I tend to believe that life is as common as beach sand, and I think this model has happened many times in many worlds. And the life form in question, humanoid or something else, Agreed. goes through yeah. many millennia of, of sort of evolutionary trial and error. Mm -hmm. They eventually suddenly hit this, this vertical spike of technology development, like we're at now. They cross or like what Macho Kaku's called, going from uh, a stage one civilization or zero exactly, to stage one. Exactly right. And I've right. actually talked with Macho Kaku on this exact topic, so you're 100% mm -hmm. right. Right. In fact, he's, the, he's, in fact, the guest tonight on our bill. 
directly following our show. Well, oh, no kidding. Good. That's awesome. And, and, well, just so okay, so they hit the sp- okay, so they hit the spike, and the spike yeah. is almost too big for them to scale and keep their humanity or keep their well, existence. And, and this is the evolutionary test. This is why I'm kind of uh, neutral on this. In fact, I'm going to be on our Bell show on December 2nd. So what the heck? Oh, good. And all Free plug. So, so the idea is this, that, that I don't know if we can monitor and control the evolution of these other types of life forms it doesn't really matter because and this may be a questionable way of looking at it but i tend to believe that if we can't survive the evolutionary trauma the challenge of being able to co-evolve this sort of symbiotic realm that we're stepping into that's the next test it's, it's not a violation of nature it is nature it's what actually happens and whether or not we're ready for it that could be a huge question i don't have an honest answer for you but I will tell you, I think that there are plenty of other people in very different areas of research and just areas of thought that are probably going to agree, even if they don't do so publicly. I'm sure they will privately because I've had these conversations. They tend to agree that we're already at a stage where this sort of metascale hive system of, a, of distributed intelligence where you have autonomous physical things at the front edge of it, but you have a much larger sort of network of other life form, like things which sort of merge together in this hive-like mechanism, um, whether or not we actually survive or are seen to be irrelevant in the eyes of this emergent life form system, that in itself is an evolutionary test. Yes, and it's how we survive, because one of the things that you said, and it's very ironic, in um, anthropology and a lot of different sciences, there is a theory that ontology fires follows uh, phylogeny, or ontogenesis follows phylogenesis. So the one develops according to the many. But let's just say in a planetary realm or in a species realm, it's not just one developing according to the many. It's that if we are now facing a test of our evolutionary capacity to embrace or join with or somehow be in harmony with the very systems we're creating, then it's almost like in the field of, it, of developmental psychology, these Ericksonian tests. So Actually, that it is. There's, yeah, you're right. So there's a test that a two-year-old, that a toddler has, that there's a test in middle age and old age, and it, these are crises. And so if you evolve beyond the crises, you develop into a relatively normal human being. Well, what if you just spin that and say now phylogeny follows ontogeny? So in other words, it is, the, it is the species that must develop the way the individual develops psychologically. Well, there's a book, boy, several different directions. So as I was mentioning to you uh, before the show started, I, I was at the ISI actually a few years ago in Marina Array, and I, I saw quite a few projects there, and I can go to some detail, but the general synopsis is that there were many attempts to create these sort of metascale psychological fuel uh, or sort of psychodynamic maps of large-scale autonomous uh, agent simulations involving tens of thousands of autonomous agents. Um, everything from psychological breakdown in the battlefield to trading systems to two different competing societies, and they would go into some kind of chaotic uh, disruption, and then they'd find, figure out what could settle the disruption to a more manageable form, that kind of thing. But one of the projects I saw, which I thought was extremely interesting, was essentially a artificial baby, just like you're describing, a baby that had a very um, uh, prolific sort of emotional swings, very, which you might call extremely wide emotional noise, 
And the whole idea was, could it learn over time? Could it be trained almost like, like a puppy or something to behave in a certain way that'd be more acceptable? Could its needs be fulfilled? Could there be an emotional path that followed the sort of reward system path, et cetera, et cetera? And, you know, this was several years ago. So I, 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 I can't emphasize strongly enough. You know, people have been nibbling at this for a while. Um, to what extent does this play into us physical humanoids? Well, I'll give you a couple of quick thoughts. Craig Venter just came out a couple of weeks ago, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier. Um, you know, of course, he was the private entity that funded the human, the private version of the human gene through what was called a company called Solera at the time. Mm. And he just went uh, public and said, look, the next big thing is going to get everybody's DNA into this ubiquitous data grid. He literally used the term that he wants to become the ghoul of DNA. Okay, fine. Well, <laughs> and, and, and we had on the show just before you Zoltan Istvan, who has himself been chipped and is very, very positive about the chipping. It's the size of a rice grain, and he's sure. all about that. Yeah, the, the original version actually came out of Florida. It was called the Digital Angel. I'm very familiar with all this. There's actually several other versions of this, by the way. But, but where I was hoping to go to was, okay, so let's walk down the path of a Gattaca-like, since we're mentioning films, as a, and I, by the way, I, I use a lot of films as reference points, so if we go to Gattaca, and this was a film that depicted a kind of a future world where your genetic right. map would determine who you would become, what path of life you would fulfill, as it were. And then more recently, there was actually a, ver- a film called Diversion, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. I uh, yeah. have, have you seen Ex Machina? Uh, I'm sorry, which now? It's oh, called Ex, Ex-, Ex-, Ex- Machina. It's La Machina, yes, of course. Yeah, yes, well, a, yeah. Ex Machina, it's, it's fabulous. Yeah, and it's, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, it suggests that the android at the end has the brain of Google, basically. Well, in a sense, yes, it does. And she was very clever. And I, I, I guess I'm going to have to do a spoiler here, but I'm guessing Not too much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the point was she was able to feign emotions. She was able to trick her human counterparts and very cleverly got herself off of the remote location into the helicopter and flew away. Okay, perfect. So is that a good depiction of one type of AI? Yes, it is. Was it an AI that that look? Human beings can sometimes be externally cruel and just horribly evil mm-hmm. in their ways, just for the sake of being evil. In the case of the AI entity in La Mahina, um, her world was she wasn't she didn't want to cause cruelty. She just wanted to escape. Mm-hmm. But she, she <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, I'm a biological organism. frailties. <laughs> so the point is. That was a good example of an AI engine that wasn't necessarily driven to be pathologically evil by nature, but she was certainly very good at finding out whatever clever mechanisms were possible to get mm-hmm. her way to a better solution in her way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. kind of how I that's kind of how I see AI. AI in its various flavors is not going to necessarily be bent on fomenting evil unless there's a particular type of AI that somebody wants to create that will actually use life for instance right now we live in a asymmetrical warfare kind of world you know i look i hearken back to the days of the soviet union versus the u.s i i worked at los alamos lab i you know i worked on all sorts of darpa funded projects etc but at that time was a simpler world you had the soviet union on one side you had us on the other i worked in this giant laser called the interis project and some other stuff i won't go into but the point is it was a simple world, and I actually met some of the former Soviet scientists that we were once contesting against, and I met them in a very peaceful way, and I was amazed at how down-to-earth they were. That Nobody on either side wanted to launch anything. I think both sides were equally holding their breath and saying, look, whatever happens, 
nobody wants to see an all-out new first change. This is all craziness, but we still have to build missiles and build giant lasers to shoot them down, you know, et cetera. It's all part of a game, but at least it was a manageable game. Okay, in today's world, we don't have that. We have ideological fanatics. We have quasi-religious belief systems, which I think are just being uh, opportunistically taken advantage of by power brokers that really do see an Armageddon kind of way to their path to heaven, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you deal with that? Exactly, and that is the key question, because the question you just posed is befuddling everybody who is not only on the level of pundits, but it's befuddling the very leaders of the countries that are involved. How do you do that? ISIS is not a conventional political movement. Not at all. It is a suicide cult. It and not is only simply, that, but it's only, it's, it's only one of many flavors of the same. Exactly, mic. but they're yes. suicide cults. They yeah. are looking for a time beyond time. They're exactly looking for so. a time beyond Armageddon. And so all the conventional rules of warfare, don't kill yourself, kill the other guy, things like that, all those go by the board. Because what you now have is literally a suicide cult. So when they reach out using very sophisticated branding and understanding of demographics to exactly the demographic for whom suicide is the second greatest cause of death, they're reaching their market. This is better than they're, they're on television. Their, they're, they're reaching their market, and I swear if you could do fMRI analysis of, of their of neural activity, you'd probably see the amygdala light up because they know how to tap into this spiritual part of the brain that they can then utilize in this really sort of evil kind of way. So my point is, if you have now a collection of AI-like entities, a sort of a large, a, a meta-scale artificial life-like system that has its physical appendages, that is various weapon platforms, but also connects to a larger sort of hive intelligence system, and that system perceives this suicide-like ideological manifestation in various places around the planet, it will probably decide at some point what's the best solution to protect the larger picture, as it were, the, the, the planetary security, as it were. It may well decide that there's large swaths of humanity that are like an infestation that probably shouldn't be here. And there's probably a lot of people that may even agree with that, but this is what I'm getting at. Defining a ethical or, mor- or moral boundary line is not a line. It's a very, very misty gray zone at best, and we may not even understand the reasoning that a synthetic sentient-like mechanism would eventually use to, in their judgment, find the better ethical path. I think that what you're talking about is more of an amalgamation than anything else, because what you're going to have is, it's not a line you're crossing like a line in the sand. It is a spectrum. And you're going to find succeeding generations. I mean, the fact that we had um, uh, Zoltan on, who very willingly had himself chip an RFID chip, then part of the issue is that is what happens when the next generation of iWatch or smartwatch or some such thing actually runs off an embedded chip and a small device? Let me take this a step further. This just a, that, in my mind, the whole uh, embedded chef and believe me, I'm very familiar with this stuff. To me, that's like a Rube Goldbergish contraption level of looking at this. I think it goes much deeper. So let me see if I can pry a little deeper, if I may. So getting back to Craig Venter and the whole DNA, you know, Google of DNA scenario, here's what I see as a very plausible near future sort of turn of events. Let's just say for a moment that you know public health care being what it is or is not, and we all have suffered the ups and downs of Obamacare, and we discuss that if you want, but what I'm getting at is 
I track the pharma industrial complex, as in PHARM, very mm-hmm. closely because a lot of the work I do involves uh, nanobiology and that kind of thing. So it's kind of a world I'm familiar with. So in that context, I could absolutely see a very credible economic model being driven by for the average person, especially the working class folks, that sort of thing. They're probably going to be introduced at some near future point. The option to opt in to the sort of meta scale Google DNA platform. In other words, okay, your health care costs this much, your insurance premiums are this much, you know, most people can't even afford it now. Okay, so for a reduction in cost or a rebate or a tax credit or whatever it might be, we'll now allow you this beautiful new option to say, okay, we'll cut your cost by X if you're willing to allow your DNA to be part of this larger data grid. The reason or the logic of that would be, well, look, there's a lot of different types of diseases and, and pathologies which can be genetically mapped, which is true. Even behavioral mechanisms, which can be genetically mapped, this is true. Much of the neurochemistry of behavior, of course, now has genetic markers for it. This has been quite well uh, articulated. So the point is, voluntarily, a lot of people will opt in for this. And the more, the, the larger that database becomes, the more refined becomes the ability to search out for and isolate and specifically target different genetic maps that may be utilized for whatever collection of purposes, whether it's a Gattaca-like model or the divergent kind of model or something similar. And as more people become brought into the system, their access to credit, their access to higher education, you know, all the sort of marker points that signifies where you are in the social strata of things will be tied to your DNA. Now, before you say, well, Charles, that's too unrealistic, well, just wait a minute now. I can recall back not that long ago when people balked and said, no, this is way too expensive. It'll never happen. Well, think again, because the market is kind of like the uh, Moore's law. It's like an inverse Moore's law. In other words, Moore's law tells you how many transistors you can pack onto a chip or how many teraflops of processing capacity. And that line keeps going further and further steeper. And people can measure computing capacity in different ways. But the general idea is that that line keeps going up to a certain threshold. Well, if you invert that line, the cost of genetic mapping keeps going down. It used to be $1,000 was considered to be the critical threshold point for the cost of decoding a human genome. Then it went down to $100. Before long, and I mean not in a handful of years, it'll be $10. You know, at some threshold, it'll be cheap enough so that virtually everybody will have their DNA become their ubiquitous social security number, as it were. So at that point, when it becomes a... At starting off as a voluntary economic sort of in, inducement to get into the system, for those that remain not in the system, it will become ever more difficult to live without their new DNA identity code. And from that point onward, the whole idea of who you are, your personal sovereignty, your neurological sovereignty, if you will, no longer is defined by your physical cells or the stuff you know inside your head, as it were. You'll become part of this ubiquitous data grid. This will be commoditized. It'll be an investment uh, strategy. This is exactly what Craig Venter is pointing at. Mm-hmm. So it, give it five, eight, maybe ten years max. This will become the common thing. Now, there are a lot of people out there, people I know personally, who actually welcome this idea. They like it. It's, it they see it as a pathway to a better life. If they can game the genetic system, as far, uh, you know, they'll come out as better people. And there's, there's a number of folks out there, again, who, some of whom I personally had conversations with, who are expecting their first child, who are, you know, starting a family. They want, they see this as their pathway. You know, it can, can my baby, when it's still a fetus, can we extract its genetic code and sort of look for those markers and then determine beforehand if it's going to be a successful sports person, an athlete, or 
a prolific, um, I don't know, musician or something or a prolific uh, specialist in some science area, whatever it might be, people are willing to pay money for this. I mean, they go to other parts of the world, like India and certain parts of Asia and so forth. This is already on the table. It's seen as a commodity. So I can absolutely see where this is going to be going next. So it's not going to be so much the chip that's embedded in your skin so you can be tracked like an RFID tag. No, that's that's background noise. To me, the much larger picture is, is your DNA going to become part of this commoditized platform that just establishes who you are and what you are and what access you have in this sort of new socioeconomic domain? I would say that's absolutely where things are going. And when you have that, and when you have that, okay, so I, I see that as another form of eugenics, but... Yeah, well, uh, I agree. Actually, I agree. I, I'm not arguing. I, I agree. And, and when you have that, are you... How do you prevent creating a multiple class system in which, and I don't see how you can avoid it, in which at first it's the very rich that have that ability. So you have uh, the, uh, the 1% creating super babies because they're the, able that's to... That's the plot of, have you ever read Charles, The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson? I know the book well. I actually have it in a box somewhere. I just haven't read it, but it's, a, it's uh, an old book from, a, from years ago. But yeah, I remember that. It's, it's kind of and, a classic and, nanotech book. And and it's exactly, but it suggests that it has many plots as as any Neil Stevenson book does. But it suggests that the ultra 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 rich who amuse themselves by pretending that they're Victorians because it's just so lush an age. But the ultra rich uh, were able to the, the richest of the rich. He he had a book commissioned for his daughter that the minute she opened it up, the book would implant with her. And teach her as she needed. It's basically like Google, who could, and and the way the story goes, the book is stolen, and it ends up in the lap of a little girl who's the daughter of a thief, the poorest of the poor. When she opens the book, it's going to make her into a super intelligence because the book doesn't care who it in, in it, it entrains with. It, and it, it basically, kind of, it, yeah, it kind of reminds me. It kind of reminds me in a, in a rough way of flowers for Algernon, which, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, in a very rough way, yes, indeed, time. yeah. Well, yeah. It, exactly, and and of course, in the case of uh, Stevenson, it's kind of tedious because his sections. I mean, the he his little literary conceit is that as the child grows, he's going to write the story in the le- level the child would be reading at. So she'd be reading at five years old when she's one. And you have to read a lengthy piece, depending well, okay, on how so, yeah, far. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, yeah. No, I, I sort of see where you're going. So let me just step it forward. So when the film Elysium came out, it was sort of pointing at this. I mean, it was kind of a metaphor of this concept. But mm-hmm. okay, so in the film Elysium, they had the orbiting, you know, space station thing where all the one percenters could hang out and have this beautiful life. And then on Earth, it was this horrible cesspool of just you know people living in a very bad way. So could something like an Elysium? I'm not saying necessarily a, a space platform, but something like an Elysium class be defined by this sort of genetic boundary point. Yes, very much so. In fact, there's another film, believe it or not, called Code 46, which might be a little more obscure, but I, I strongly said it was actually a very well-made film, and it's exactly this. It, they have these large walled cities, and in order to get access to the beautiful walled cities, you had to have the right genetic code. And if you did something bad or went politically against the grain or exposed the wrong thing, you might get tossed out of the city and then you're dead. And it's called, it's called it's Code. Called code, code 46. It's actually very well done. It's surprising it didn't get more um, you know, play in the theaters or whatever. But if you want to see a picture of this idea, which I think was more realistically depicted than Elysium or any of the other films, that's mm-hmm. the one I would sort of – as a homework assignment, I'd sort of point at that. But okay, so so getting back to – Or 
or vote for Trump next year, and he'll make that happen in reality. <laughs> He's not smart enough, but the people who would support him probably would. See, this is what I'm scared of. I mean, George Bush was like a talking head, you know, sort of airhead. Idiot. But, yep. but, the, but the people behind him were the worst of the evil things you could imagine. I mean, this is exactly the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So if you had Trump get in there, would the next layer of evil, this sort of ultra uber pharma industrial complex, you know, war machinery, et cetera, sort of say, okay, now we really got our hands in the pie, as it were. Yeah, of course. I mean, so this is the kind of evolutionary test that we're being subjected to. But just to kind of tap into a thread here, now, you may or may not know about this, but but there is this um, business that's been launched. It's a guy named Josh Bocanegra, Bocanegra sorry, uh, who started something called Hume. And what Hume is, it's, it's short for human AI. And this is the first attempt to actually raise money to you know get venture capital folks and et cetera, people that kind of like the way that, um, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, Bigelow Space is selling uh, sort of space in his right. hotels yes. in space. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So people can buy, okay. Or the way that Virgin Galactic was trying to sell, you know, airtime under first you know, sort of stratospheric airplanes, that kind of thing. Okay, so these guys are trying to sell time into there. You'll love this. It's a way to upload your intelligence, as it were, your your I don't know, your consciousness into a kind of a quantum computing platform type of system. They don't really have the system up and running quite yet, but you know, I will offer you this idea that the pieces of the puzzle are sort of coming together. Now, there's a company called D-Wave. You may know about these folks. They're up in Canada. And they're the first commercially available. You can actually, for $10 million, you can buy one yourself if you wish. It's a genuine functioning quantum computer. I mean, it's, it's the real thing. Uh, about two and a half, three weeks ago, the first publicly published, I should point this out, there's, the, there's a big disparity between what comes out in the academic press and what's really going on. So I have to point that out. But so mm-hmm. this was a publicly uh, published Academic peer-reviewed paper just came out, room temperature um, quantum entanglement in silicon. That's a really big deal. That's For a very big deal. That's a that's really big why, why deal. That's a actually big, a frightening deal. Well, okay, okay, because, because you're stepping into the very territory. Oh, boy, this is going to take a little while, so forgive me. But go ahead. You're, ste- you're stepping into the very territory that makes the concept of something like a human scale holographic form of information processing possible. It's not going to happen with ones and zeros. It's not going to happen with discrete analog circuits. I mean, a lot of people have tried this. I'm very aware of these different efforts. But the thing that's probably the closest to being a practical way of mimicking what really happens in our biological systems is the enterprise of quantum entanglement being deployed as a repeatable mechanism. And just to sort of go backwards a couple of squares, uh, for my little world that I work in, I, mean, I work in a research lab all day, and, and part of what I work on is I work with plants, actually, which is going to be sort of a tangent here. But one of the things that really got my attention, I, I work on in sort of like nanoscale photonics in chloroplasts, and I'll just let that sort of hang out. So you must like the new uh, electronic uh, circuit rows. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I can't, I can't say exactly what I'm working because my employers would get very angry, but, but they're not the only ones. There's a lot of folks doing this. I, I tend and, to, and you've you, seen The Secret Life of Plants, right? In the <laughs> very, 70s? Much so. very much familiar with Rupert Sheldrake. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't agree completely with what he's done, but <clears throat> I appreciate his general concepts. I think he's sort of pointing in the right direction. I think some of his more tangential ideas are a little bit far out even for me, but, but that's okay. I mean, I'm very open to ideas. But So here's where I'm trying to go with this. So back in 2007, 
um, at I know where I used to work actually at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, what had been the synchrotron was then converted into what's now called the extreme photon source. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. So one of the very first things that was done with the extreme photon source, funded by DOE, was to explore the possibility of creating a synthetic chloroplast. And the reason for this was to, as a sort of a biological approach to solar energy. Very, very interesting concept. I mean, totally valid. In fact, I knew a couple of people, one guy in particular, Michael Heller, who's now retired. He was from UCSD. And he actually had a programmable chip, a device, where it had sort of nanoscale little uh, sockets or little points where you could sort of move biological material around at the molecular scale as an addressable uh, substrate on a chip surface. And actually, his goal was to make a synthetic chloroplast. So here he had Lawrence Lab doing their work, and then he had Michael Heller trying to physically create a, a platform or a chip that could mimic this process. Okay, fine. So among the things that came out the other end from the first research projects at the extreme photon source was the discovery of dot, 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 quantum entanglement happening in photosynthesis. This was a big deal. Very big, because, very big. Because virtually all of the quantum entanglement experiments that had been involving some kind of solid-state substrate and you know very sort of exotic experiments along these lines were pretty much done at cryogenic temperatures, really starting at liquid helium levels, you know, Kelvin degree one, and then it advanced to maybe like liquid nitrogen temperatures. But still, it was very exotic and very difficult, and you could sort of make it work if you had just exactly the right conditions, but nobody in their wireless dreams thought they would see this in biological materials. Well, maybe not. So, I mean, there are a number of folks, myself included, who, you know, broadcast these crazy sounding ideas to rooms full of science people and mostly for the most part got laughed out of the room. But not everybody. I mean, there is a few like Dean Radin, who I give a lot of credit for, who's actually working at IONS just down the road from here, and other people in the physics, mostly in the physics world, who theoretically suggested that maybe something like quantum entanglement does, in fact, happen in biological systems. Well, lo and behold, in 2007, with DOE funding the process, by accident, they discovered that, oh my gosh, look at this. We can actually see the artifacts of quantum entanglement happening in chloroplasts. Why is this a big deal? Well, let me, let me explain what that means. Mm -hmm. it, not to go into a big botany lecture, believe me, but the, the rough version is uh, photons have to be recognized. You have to have a certain number of photons recognized at the same time to instigate mm -hmm. the ionization of hydrogen so you have electrons flowing through. There's these photoreactive proteins called thylakoids. That's like an antenna system. That's, a, that's the front end of a chloroplast. So what happens is a bunch of photons come tunneling in there, and as long as a certain number of them happen at the same time, right. you get enough coherent electron spin between these hydrogen uh, atoms sort of floating around, so you get enough uh, momentum or, or molecular kinetics, as it were, uh, to get electrons to pop well, up. But how do you know about the other side of their entanglement? Where? Oh, okay, the... so here, okay, so here's where it gets kind of interesting. Because it turns out that because they could resolve time down to the femtosecond level, they began to discover that the photons didn't have to actually land at exactly the same time. You could have a few femtoseconds plus or minus either way but still have enough coherency, enough phase coherency, so that the electron spin in these various hydrogen atoms kind of bouncing around would suddenly behave like a single entity, and you would get this collection of ions tumbling off the other end. And nobody could explain this. There was no mm. standard physical model that could say, well, this is why this works. However, when they began to apply a quantum entanglement model to it, it explained it rather perfectly, and they ran these computer simulations to say, well, actually, that's the only answer that exists. So then they published some papers. Various people started to debate this a little bit. But then, halfway around the world, in fact, in several places around the world, in China and Germany and elsewhere, <coughs> excuse me, people began to replicate the same experiments, and lo and behold, the same results. So the mm -hmm. eventual 
uh, agreement was, okay, the only explanation for this is a form of quantum entanglement affecting these physical systems, the interaction between photons coming in and uh, ions, uh, electrons being uh, liberated via the ionization of hydrogen at ambient temperatures in a wet biological system. This was completely, I mean, radically different from anything. Yes, but, did it, yeah, but doesn't it astound you? Yeah, but doesn't it astound you that <clears throat> there's a kind of a fuzzy coherency in the spins? See, that's what well, astounds well, me, that it's not exactly yeah. equal. Well, and so this was the beginning. I mean, in quantum computing, that's exactly what you have. You're dealing with electron spin, and you have to determine what the spin state is at a precise moment in time. And the whole point is, can you get a bunch of different electrons sort of spinning in the same way, behaving like a single thing, even if it's only for a fraction of a femtosecond, as long as you have that little window of time, you can sort of say, that's what the data state is, is at that moment. Okay, fine. So can you replicate that in a biological system? Apparently you can. Now it turns out that now they've discovered quantum entanglement in photosynthesis, they've discovered in various animals, one of the key sort of uh, investigations was actually in migratory birds, believe it or not, and they could find that there was quantum coherence in the magnetite particles because it was the only way they could explain how the process actually worked. I mean, there's a whole variety. I mean, if you just type in search terms, um, biological quantum entanglement, and maybe biophysics, you're going to get just you know a whole collection of papers. This would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Okay, so but it now, does explain, yeah, but it does explain why birds fly around and not through crop circles, which have a very high level of um, of um, magnetic field through them. Well, I mean, the well, real I, ones. I'm not sure about how to answer that one, but I will go this far: that when it comes to explaining how consciousness works, this idea of telepathy being an actual physical thing that can be measured and somehow codified. And this is, of course, what Dean Radin and other folks in his genre of work have been looking at for, for decades now. This is the first time we have a, a kind of a workable platform mm-hmm. to say, okay, we can't explain exactly why it works, but here's the phenomenon that would be the closest match to the things we can observe. And in every case where you try to come up with a reasonable model, the only thing that actually explains this is this quantum entanglement mechanism. Okay, so fine. So now two weeks ago, uh, for the first time in published in academic papers, you have this room temperature quantum entanglement observable in silicon that really steps radically fast forward into the world of, okay, could we actually have some kind of a mechanism that could mimic what happens with us, with our consciousness? Is there a way to upload yourself or some portion of your being, as it were, to a silicon-based platform that could, that could interact the same way that our consciousness interacts in our sort of biophysical framework that we're familiar with? Can that be replicated in this silicon-based platform that these people are just now beginning to create, it suggests this. So the fact that this guy would come out with this business model saying, okay, we're ready to launch HumeAI, and for those folks that want to buy advanced tickets, we may be a few years off, but we can see where the technology is sort of pointing towards, you know, step up to the plate and buy your tickets now because it will cost more later, you know, this kind of thing. It suggests something. I'm, I'm just sort of pointing in this direction. Well, that, I'll tell you what it also suggests. But um, we only have two minutes, guys. So we're okay. To... Well, you know, my suggestion would no be pressure. that <laughs> that Edison was right, and that mm-hmm. after the death of the body, if quantum entanglement is a real phenomenon in biological entities, then you may well have, at least for a short period of time, a level of quantum entanglement existing beyond the corp uh, the corporeal state. No, I, I tend to agree with this. I, I think that when we physically die, quote-unquote, um, what our re- remains are, the physical containment vessel that we're sort of living for a moment, 
that becomes an irrelevant mechanism to de- to determine what actually is left over, and how that that quantum entanglement signature it may dissipate, it may sort of spread out and become like a thin mist in the sort of quantum domain. But there is something besides just our physical physiology that determines our consciousness. We happen to be in this containment vessel. But I completely agree with it. It's not limited. Charles, just- it sounds like the Matrix, if you ask me. <laughs> well, it also well, sounds like tran- transhumanism. Check out yeah. our <coughs> check out Zoltan. I will. And transhumanism. I yeah. <clears throat> no, yeah. no, I don't. I don't, I don't completely agree with the whole transhumanism platform. I think that there's certain pieces of it which I probably disagree with. But that's okay. I mean, that's the whole point. Where at least we're looking at it. But I will say this much: that something like an Elysium probably is in our future uh, how that's determined probably by some form of genetic mapping i think that's a, a, a right. fairly reasonable way of looking at things and look we now have well over seven billion people in this world a huge number of which are unemployed as we speak the g- global gdp to debt ratio is around five to one in other words the current economic slash socio sort of anthropological platform as it's currently operating it's not it's not sustainable it's just not um, you can't have a, a perpetually growth-driven economic engine system that requires consuming ever more stuff and selling ever more stuff to keep an, a, an artificially contrived economy afloat based on an ever-growing population base mapped against a fixed planetary resource base. That just doesn't work. I, I don't and care. that's exactly what I have said. We're out of time. Bill? And we're out of time. Yeah, we are out of time. So, Charles, I want to thank you. We're, I'm very happy you're going to be on uh, Midnight in the Desert and, uh, next week. We're looking Absolutely. forward to that. So, um, and next week we are having uh, John Rhodes, uh, my guest on UFO Hunters. So, from the banks of Primrose Creek, we are your co-hosts, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Good night, everybody. Thank you. And we're saying good night. Have a wonderful week. And we will see you after Thanksgiving next week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you, Charles. See you all next week. Thank you. Great. Good night.